an idealist medical examiner and his brilliant chief toxicologist battle to solve New York City's unsolvable crimes. This is not a new primetime drama, but the story of the birth of forensic science in the early 20th century, as described in the Poisoner's Handbook. Welcome to ReachMD Book Club. I'm your host, Dr. John Russell. We're joined by author Deborah Blum. Deborah, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. So how did you get interested in this topic? Well, I know this will make me sound a little creepy, but I've always been interested in poison. I uh, I just find uh, the chemical compounds that are poisonous really interesting because, you know, in a lot of ways they're very clever. Most chemicals don't harm us. Many help us. So the ones that... Uh, actually do damage have to be devious in some way, manipulate our systems. I was fascinated by that. And as I started to think about that part of it, what makes a poison so interesting, I found myself thinking, but what, what was it like before our CSI age? What, what was it like before we really knew how to detect a poison, find one in a corpse, catch a killer? And that really was what led me to write the Poisoner's Handbook. So what was the medical examiner's office like in New York City at the turn of the century? Well, at the very turn of the 20th century, New York didn't have a medical examiner's office. They, uh, the city used politically appointed coroners. And what made this particularly troublesome in the pre-Norris days is the city was at that time run by a fairly corrupt political machine called Tammany Hall. So you can go back and look at the lists of coroners in the early 20th century in New York, and I think this probably mirrors a lot of what was going on around the country, and they were milkmen and sign painters and funeral home operators and, you know, ferrymen, uh, but very rarely anyone who had any scientific training. And the only doctors who became coroners were usually those who had lost their practice for killing many patients, but had done a favor for the machine and gotten this job, which meant that the coroner system, in terms of providing good information to detectives, was phenomenally unreliable. So who was Dr. Charles Norris? Well, Norris was the first uh, professionally trained medical examiner in New York City. He came in in 1918. I find him a really fascinating guy. He came from an old American East Coast family, the Norrises, who founded Norristown, Pennsylvania. He was a, you know, a wealthy and distinguished family on both sides. He, he, on his mother's side, his grandfather had brokered the first $100 million loan for the Union Army in the Civil War. And he got interested in uh, forensic medicine, had to train in Europe because there was no training in the United States, and was a dedicated public servant. He didn't need the money. He had a private income. But he saw this as a way to both, you know, find the guilty and protect the innocent. And he was a crusader, a complete crusader by nature. So his sidekick seemed to be Alexander Gettler. Who mm-hmm. was he? And Gettler's interesting in a very di- – I mean, Gettler is also interesting. He's very different. He was the first forensic toxicologist ever attached to an American city. Now, Norris hired him almost off the bat as soon as he went into office. And Gettler was uh, from a poor immigrant family. He put himself through school all the way through his Ph.D. in chemistry. And he was – he had this in common with Norris – He was completely obsessive. He would stay up at night designing chemical apparatus to, to, you know, for his experiments, drive his wife completely crazy, but he couldn't stop until he got an answer. So how did the two of them kind of reframe, reimagine the Emmy's office? Well, you have to, I mean, just taking poison as an example, you have to realize, you know, what a a sort of primitive operation uh, 
scientific detection of uh, criminal, uh, well, I can't say that, criminal offenses had been. Uh, there were no training, there were no departments in the United States that trained people in forensic medicine. Uh, Norris and Gettler actually partnered in establishing the first Department of Forensic Medicine in the United States, and that was in 1934 at NYU. So, Cities had sort of cobbled together their information. And Norris and Gettler, if you just looked at poison as an example, you can go back and realize that they laid down the foundation we use today. There was very little information about toxic compounds. There was not a lot of understanding of either how to find it in a corpse or what it did in a corpse. Just to give you one example, Alexander Gettler was the first person in the world to figure out how to tell if someone was drunk at time of death. No one knew how to do that. They didn't know how to read the alcohol in the brain. They didn't know what it meant according to how much was in the bloodstream or the stomach at time of death. It took him 6,000 brains, and I love this because it was during Prohibition when it was illegal to drink, but it took him 6,000 brains to work that out. So you see these guys very meticulously throughout the 20s and into the 30s laying down this foundation that says, Here's the reliable science. So when you need to catch a cyanide killer or an arsenic murderer or, you know, figure out a lethal dose of mercury, we can lay that down and you can use it for years to come. So arsenic itself was a classic poison, it sounds like. I love arsenic. It's one of my favorite poisons. I must say that in an abstract way. But especially in the 19th century, it was a perfect homicidal poison. It was tasteless. It was odorless. It was not detectable in a corpse. The uh, first test that allowed anyone to find arsenic in a corpse didn't come around until the mid-19th century. It mimicked a natural illness, and it was in everything. It was used to color candy green. It was used to make, you know, medical and cosmetic formulas. Women took it uh, at very low doses uh, to clear their complexion. So if you were angry with someone, you had this beautiful poison that was non-detectable by either the victim or scientists. And so during the 19th century, arsenic was known as the inheritor's powder. That was its nickname in Europe because it was so widely used. It's a fascinating poison. Can you talk about one of the early cyanide cases that, that Drs. Norris and Gettler worked on? Well, one of the ones that really fascinated me involved a, a locker room mystery. I mean, people think of those as only occurring in fictional murder mysteries, but this was a real locked room mystery in which uh, a couple were discovered dead in their locked hotel room, and there was no poison in the room. And they had some signs, uh, skin color changes that you might associate with cyanide poisoning, but uh, there was no cyanide in the room. And so it was this phenomenal mystery, and it took a, a collaboration of both the medical examiner's office and relentless questioning by the police department until they realized, uh, and this seem very primitive to us today, but at the time, they used the gas hydrogen cyanide routinely as a pesticide fumigant, right, to get rid of rats or uh, other pests, and hydrogen cyanide is a super lethal gas. You know, we know it best probably from its use in Nazi gas chambers in World War II. So they had fumigated without realizing this couple was at home in the kind of apartment building they were in, and the gas had killed them, and the hotel operator had tried to cover this up. And so Norris and Gettler were involved in solving that case. Um, it didn't go perfectly in which they solved the case, 
But it, when they went to court, that case illustrated a problem that was kind of inherited from the coroner system, which is that neither jurors nor police trusted scientists. They were too used to the bad information from this corrupt coroner system. So, in fact, the people who were responsible got away because the science itself was called into question. And this you also see affecting Norris and Gettler. This was fairly early after they started. And you see Norris go on this crusade, this national crusade, to make forensic science a more respected profession after this. And you see Gettler doing obsessive cyanide research. He studied cyanide for another 12 years. And when he published his paper on the toxicology of cyanide in the 1930s, it's still cited by the EPA. I mean, it's a complete classic. And it kind of shows both of those guys how driven they were. They wanted to build something. They wanted to change the world. You're listening to ReachMD Book Club. I'm your host, Dr. John Russell. We're talking with author Deborah Blum on the advent of forensic toxicology in her book, The Poisoner's Handbook. Deborah, I found the sections related to alcohol and prohibition especially disturbing. Can you talk about that? Yes, I did too. And and this was probably for me some of the more shocking things that came up when I was doing research into this period. So if you look at the period I'm talking about, it really encompasses prohibition, pro, uh, which was, you know, the federal government's effort to ban the trafficking and sale and distribution of alcohol. Uh, that went into effect in 1920 following the 18th Amendment, and it wasn't lifted until 1933. Uh, what I hadn't realized, one, was the incredible amount of uh, consumption of poisonous alcohol that followed this. You know, the 1920s was a really anarchistic decade in that you have a national amendment to the Constitution, national law ratified by Congress and all of the states, and people immediately start breaking that law. They didn't like the federal government telling them what to drink and how they could do it. And in New York City alone, you see the rise from 1920 to 1930 of more than 20,000 illegal speakeasies where you could get bootlegged whiskey. The other thing that happened is that people made their own, right? Well, you know, so occasionally you'll still hear a reference to bathtub gin, but people would build little secret stills in the back of their stores or in their basements. And because they couldn't get their hands on, you know, they couldn't go out to Nebraska and get wheat or any other grain, they would uh, distill whatever organic material was at hand. So people, you know, distilled their furniture and sawdust and branches from trees. And so you got a lot of wood alcohol out there, which is very poisonous. Uh, we metabolize wood alcohol, which is also called methanol. Uh, and as, as the body breaks that down, it creates uh, formaldehyde and formic acid. And so it becomes more and more poisonous as you stay in your body, and it stays in your body. So you saw that. There were a phenomenal number of deaths. And then, interestingly enough, and, and to me, this is probably one of the more troubling findings, the U.S. government realizing how poisonous this is, decides to use it as an enforcement tool for prohibition. And because bootleggers were also stealing industrial alcohol uh, and rebottling it as assorted of whiskeys, they passed rules requiring those alcohol makers to add more methanol to it. And they produced a, a, an epidemic of deaths. Norris and Gettler crusaded against these policies endlessly, and Norris actually wrote a, 
article in a you know popular magazine, something like The Atlantic, called our essay an extermination because he felt the federal government was so responsible for so many people's deaths. In the book, doctors Norris and Gettler seem to have as many instances as absolving plaintiffs as convicting them. Is that true? Well, one of the points I like to make is that, you know, when we think about forensic science, we watch these, you know, forensic kind of TV shows, and they're all focused on proving guilt. We're going to find the guilty person, and they're going to be punished, but it's just as important to prove innocence. And so some of the cases, you know, you want an objective science that's going to fairly find you guilty or establish the fact that you're not. And so one of, some of the cases that I highlighted in the book were some fairly spectacular examples of Norris and Gettler exonerating people. I, I mean, there was one case I looked at in the, in the chapter that looked at mercury poison of a man who was you know, accused of murdering his wife, and it turned out to really be that while there was mercury in her body, that he was not the source of that. And then uh, there's a wonderful case, at least it was wonderful to me, although it's grisly, of a man who um, acts, is accidentally complicit in a woman's death and uh, dismembers her body to try to hide that. And Norris and Gettler's work in this figuring out exactly what happened and saving that man from the electric chair is really brilliant work. And there's so many other things that radium and carbon monoxide and thallium. It's, it's an amazing book, and it seems like there's, you know, 20 different forensic shows on, you know, any week. What do you think are the, is the final legacy of Drs. Norris and Gettler? Two things that I think are really at least, well, three things that I like to dwell on. One is they really did, as I said, lay down this foundation for a credible science of forensic toxicology, and all of us depend on that today, right? And it's not just, here's that we depend on it to solve homicides, but we use it in environmental and public health science, right? They did some of the early work, for instance, showing that lead in gasoline is dangerous. They were so far ahead of their time on that. And you can see that work lay a foundation for the later removal of lead from gasoline in the United States. But the other smaller point, and I think this is important too, is you know, you're really talking about two underpaid civil servants in a city laboratory that's largely underfunded because it's politically unpopular. And yet these guys change the world. And they are a reminder to us that, you know, two that dedicated, determined people, even working in those kinds of circumstances, can make an enormous difference. And I think that's a wonderfully positive message. Thank you so much for being on the show. A wonderful book, The Poisoner's Handbook, for any devotees of medical history or anyone who's interested in forensics or science. Just some some amazing tales in there. Deborah, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. It was a real pleasure. This is Dr. John Russell. For more information on this podcast or others in the series, please visit reachmd.com slash book club. Thanks for listening.